and start with a word of prayer. Lord, it's, it's a joy to sing that all we have is Christ. What a tremendous truth, Lord. We have everything because we have Christ. All of these things will be added unto us. And so, Lord, we're grateful that we can release everything and take hold of Jesus and not lose. Uh, what, a great, what a great truth. What a great song. Thank you for your mercy to us. Father, I want to pray for Kathy as she's with her mom and her mom isn't doing well. Um, Father, I just pray that you would give uh, her mom a sense of peace and hope in you. Lord, that Kathy and the rest of the family would, um, would look to their mom and, and bless her as she goes. If this is her time, Lord, if you're calling her home now, if you're calling her to a reward, then uh, Lord, may she go gracefully and peacefully. And I pray for the family that they would mourn with hope, that they would um, look forward to the day of the resurrection when they'll be with her again. Have mercy on the family, we pray. And Lord, speaking of your mercy on people, we want to praise you for the healing that you've given Daniel Holmquist from, uh, from the cancer. Uh, Father, I want to pray especially for his upcoming surgery to, to repair some of the work that they've already done on him, um, but also, Lord, for um, his liver to, uh, to heal, that uh, the doctor might continue to be able to wean him off of the steroids, and Lord, that you would restore his health so that he might lead uh, Calvary EV free um, in a... In a good in a strong way, Lord, that you'd restore his strength. And Lord, having gone through the cancer, that he would know even more clearly that you are God and that you care for your people and that you provide for them. And Father, we just pray that you would have mercy on, on him and his family as well. Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to hear the story of Saul? Um, tell us what it is that we need to understand. Show us what it is that your word is speaking to us today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I like a good optical illusion. I just think they're fun because it's a way to play with your brain without taking it out of your head. So that's kind of a plus for me. And the, the fascinating thing for me is why do optical illusions work? Why do they function in our brain the way they do? And it's because our brain is built to be this high speed pattern recognition machine. Um, we, we can see things and we, we organize them very quickly in our mind and we, we recognize what they are pretty fast. And most of the time we're right. Um, the evolutionary answer to that is, is because you need to be able to look at the jungle, see a stack of, uh, of leaves and know that that was or was not a tiger coming to eat you. And well, you know, that's true. It's a pretty handy function of being able to recognize patterns is not being eaten. I mean, I would prefer that. I don't think that's the fullness of the answer because that pattern recognition goes much, much deeper than just fight or flight. Um, newborn infants, when they finally are able to open their eyes and they're able to see, they're searching for a pattern. They are looking for their mother's face. And it's, it's just so deeply rooted in us before we're even thinking rationally, we're looking for faces. We want that kind of connection. So go ahead and throw the uh, slide up, please. The, switch it over. Um, so that's part of the way that uh, we trick our brain into an optical illusion because we're looking for those patterns. So you'll see patterns like this and you'll find faces in them. You'll find faces in a sink or in a mop. Um, can you put the, the lights to like uh, singing? Because it's a little dark. I love the mop one. I don't know if you can see it really clear, but because angry. We can find faces in a pile of rocks on Mars, 
or we can see the um, Mary looking back at us from a grilled cheese sandwich because our brains are geared to look for those kind of patterns. And, and that's fun to play with them. And, and we have to recognize that. So when we see things, we're, we're, we're trying to interpret them very quickly. We have to, we can't stop in all of life and, and look and say, well, is that a chair? That looks like it's a chair pattern. Let me analyze that. Let me make some measurements and, and test it. You just see and you assume things. Um, but the fun part with optical illusions is sometimes you get it wrong. So sometimes when you see something, it's not what you think it is. So for example, that's a giraffe. That is just clearly a giraffe. You, it's got the funky little horns on top, the big ears. It's a giraffe. But if you look at it from another perspective, it's a penguin. It just look at it in a different direction. And it's clearly a penguin. It's got those stubby little wings that don't work. This one, this is a shark swimming over top of us. We're underwater, we're looking up, it's a shark swimming past us. Danger, <laughs> this, is, this is problems. Unless you look at it the other way around and now it's a pig swimming towards us. It's not danger, it's dinner. So there's different ways of seeing that. There's different, different approaches to it. So when we see something, we can go with our first impression and, and click down to it very quickly. Uh, for example, this one, this is clearly a lion. There is a lion staring at us. It's beautiful. But when we turn it upside down, uh, you can't see it too terribly well. Or maybe you can. I got a light in my eyes. It turns into a mouse. The face changes. We're going to be introduced to Saul this morning. And when we meet Saul, we're going to be presented a, a picture of him. And the way that we receive that picture, we have to be careful not to uh, see it the wrong way around. As a matter of fact, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this introduction to Saul and we're going to look at him one way and then we'll flip the picture and see what comes out next. Um, it's complicated. He's a, he's a complicated character. Now, we're biased because we know the rest of the story, right? We know who Saul is. He turns out to be a real jerk. And so we want to broadcast that back here. But put yourself into Israel's shoes for a moment. This is the first time we've met Saul. This is the beginning of his call to be the king. We don't know. He could be good. He could be bad. We don't know yet. And so we, we have to kind of approach it carefully. So let's go ahead and take a look. So it starts with his, his genealogy. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's the son of Kish. And Kish is a man of wealth. That's how the ESV says it. So he's, he's rich. That's a plus to begin with. It also says that he was a head taller than everybody else. So he's a tall man. Now, in, for us, tall, you look at him and you go, oh, maybe you play basketball. But the thing is, it could be more than that. In, in, in this time, a tall person would be somebody who would be intimidating in battle. And, and you, you uh, arm them up, you put some, uh, some uh, armor on them, hand them a spear and send them out, and they would be intimidating to other people. So he's wealthy, he's big, that's a plus. And then it says that he's more handsome than other people. So here you go, man, this, is the, this guy sounds like a winner, right? Good looking, tall. Um, wealthy, he, he's, he's, a, he's a good start here. This is not a bad picture to start with our, our image of Saul. Now, what happens is um, some donkeys from his father get loose and they get lost. And so his father says, take a servant and go, go find those, those uh, donkeys. And so Saul heads out looking, you know, faithful son, going to obey his father, takes off and goes looking for the donkeys. And he travels quite a bit. He's searching around and he can't find them. He's looked everywhere. So he winds up in the land of Zuf. Now, where these locations are isn't terribly important. We don't know where some of these locations are, and it's not the point. 
The point is, he's traveled for a while. He's looking for these donkeys. He's trying to recover his father's property. But after a while, he says, he says to his servant, come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. This is a faithful son. My dad is going to be worried. He doesn't care. We can replace the donkeys, but we're not replaceable. We're, I'm his son. You're one of his servants. Let's go. So the servant then says, hey, wait a minute now. There's a man of God in this city, and we can go to him, and we can ask him what's going on. He will, he will answer us because everything he says comes true. So Saul says, yeah, but we got a problem here, man. I, I, our food is almost gone, and I didn't bring anything to offer him. So you, you would go to a seer, you go to a prophet, and you would pay them for their services. You would give them some gift. And Saul is like, I, I don't have anything to give him. What are we going to do? Well, the servant, fortunately, was very resourceful, and he headed out with some silver. And he said, I've got some silver. Let's go talk to this guy. So that's what they're going to do. They're going to head off, and they're going to talk to him. Verse 9 is interesting because it's this kind of parenthetical statement explaining that term seer. So the, the author, had, there's a number of reasons that, that he puts it in there. The primary one is because the audience he's writing to wouldn't understand seer, and he's trying to be accurate. But it shows how particular he's being about the words that he's choosing. He's going to explain this word so his people will understand. So I think that's kind of a neat thing. And it's going to come in again when we go back and look again. So a servant said, or Paul says to his servant, well done, let's go. So they go to the city where the man of God was. They're heading into this city. We don't even know what city it is. It's in, in the land of, of uh, Shur, but we don't know where that is. Where is Zur? Where's the city? Um, as they're going in, some women are coming out to go get water. And so they ask him, Saul stops and says, um, is the seer here? Is that prophet, is he here? And they, they give him a long answer and explanation. Yeah, he's here, but you better hurry because he's going to go up to the high place and they're going to have a sacrifice. And so you better catch him before he gets up there or you're going to miss him. He'll be up there for a while. Um, now, high place, we, if you've read through the Bible, when you get to that term high place, you've heard it in Kings and Chronicles a number of times and it's always a bad thing. I'm not sure that it's a bad thing here because there's no negative consequence in this. And besides, it's Samuel doing it, not his lousy sons. So it, it's possible that this is permittable because in Deuteronomy 12, uh, Deuteronomy 12 says that you can slaughter and eat in your own towns. You don't have to go to Jerusalem or go where the temple is. You can do it in your own towns. Now that's like, well, yeah, but that's slaughtering and eating. Is that a sacrifice? But if you keep reading the Permission then goes to a, a prohibition. He said, God tells um, Moses that you will not eat of the tithe of the grain, the oil, or the wine there, and that you won't eat of the firstborn of the flock there in your hometown, um, but you, and you won't eat of a, a vow or a freewill offering in your town. So the context that that's in is not just you can go eat, but it's, it's in this context of permissible non-permissible kind of thing. So it could be that Deuteronomy 12 is saying that, that there is an option, a, a, a right way to offer sacrifice or to eat the sacrifice outside of the temple. Think about where we're at with, for Samuel, where's the tabernacle right now? Tabernacles in Shiloh, but the Ark of the Covenant is not. And so the, the place, the, the central place of worship is disrupted. And so maybe this is just the best they could hobble together. I don't know. It's not really clear. But again, I don't see anything in this text that says Saul was wrong or Samuel was wrong for doing this. So we'll just kind of observe it, right? We don't want to get read too much into the picture. 
So Saul is going to go up to this. Uh, he's he's going to go look for Samuel before Samuel takes off for the high place. Suddenly, the text changes. We, we shift perspective. Instead of Saul's perspective, we're now getting Samuel's perspective. And so we're looking at it from this way. And it starts with, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from Benjamin, and you shall anoint him prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because of their cry to me. So we kind of, all of a sudden we stop that narrative. We take a step back the day before and we get to see from Samuel's perspective, God had told him somebody's going to show up tomorrow. And when he does, you anoint him to be king over uh, Israel. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He is the one who will restrain my people. That's, isn't it interesting? He's the one that will deliver them from the Philistines. Yes, but he will restrain my people. Remember where we're at in the story, right? We've come from the book of Judges where there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And now God says, I'm appointing a king. And this king, he's going to restrain that, that wicked inclination of my people. That's what my, I want my king to do. And so that's the promise that we get of Saul. Pretty good picture so far, isn't it? This, this is going to go great um, because we don't know the rest of the story yet. So don't jump ahead. Um, so God tells him, this is the man. And so then um, what Samuel does is he tells Saul, uh, or Saul comes up to Samuel and says, hey, is the house of the seer here? Is this the right place to find the seer? Um, purely accidental, right? I mean, it just happened that Saul walked up to the very person he was looking for because, you know, it's just coincidence. There's no such thing as coincidence. God had told him the day before somebody's going to come to you, and then he sends him to him. So now they go and they, he says to, the, uh, uh, to Saul, um, are you, where's the house of the seer? I'm the house of the seer. Now let me explain to you what's going to happen. Um, don't worry about your donkeys. You've been searching for them for three days and they're, they're home. Don't worry about that. Instead, I want you to go with me to the high place for the sacrifice and then I'll tell you what's going to happen. And so that's, that's the promise that we get there is that He's going to explain it to him. I just picture Saul at this point with just an utterly confused look on his face. How do you know me? How did you know I was looking for donkeys? You're going to tell me what? And then it gets worse because he says, uh, Saul says, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? What? Now, in, in English, we have to choose a way to translate that. But if you notice when Harlan read it, it was slightly different than the way I just read it. And that's because in the Hebrew, it is intentionally ambiguous. It could be translated in a couple of different ways. So the NIV says, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, but to you and your father's house. The ESV says, and to whom is the desire of is who is uh, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel. So one is saying all Israel desires you to be king. And another one says, everything that anybody in Israel could want is for you and your house. So which one is it? We don't know yet. <laughs> it's not sure. And, and it's, that's why I, I chose that optical illusion uh, illustration for the beginning is because there's two different ways to look at this. And we could read it either way. And so it's kind of confusing. So Saul's response to that is, why would you say that to me? I'm from Benjamin, the smallest of all the tribes in Israel. 
Why is Benjamin the smallest of all the tribes in Israel at this point? Because of the end of the book of Judges. They, they, they were utterly re reprehensible. And so Israel came and almost wiped them out. Of course, they're the least. They're not the best tribe in Israel at this point. So he's, why would you come to me and say that to me about my, I'm from this, this wicked tribe. We're still trying to recover. It's been generations. We're still trying to rebuild. And then he says that his family is the least. But at the beginning, we were told they're wealthy. So maybe it's least in numbers, but they're pretty wealthy people or something like that. And so Saul says, don't worry about it. And takes him up to the, uh, the, the uh, offering on the high place. And so he brings them into the hall. Now, I always think of the, the high place as kind of like a big hill and there's a nice tree on top or something. But apparently there's a building there. And so Saul and Samuel and the servant all go up there. Samuel offers the sacrifice. And apparently when he offered the sacrifice, he cut part of it off and gave it to the cook and said, hang on to this. So when you do a sacrifice, we often think of a whole burnt offering where we burn up everything on the altar. But that's not what most of the offerings were. Most of the offerings were you would burn part of it on the altar. You'd give some to the priest and then you take the rest and you go sit down with your family and eat. Remember when we heard about Eli's lousy sons, they were taking whatever they wanted. They weren't taking the portion that was allotted to them. So that's what's happened is they get up to the, the sacrifice and Saul has, or Samuel has said, take this and set this part aside. This is the best part. I want you to hang on to it. And so that's where he's at. And then he tells the cook, now bring it out and give it to, to Saul. So he just said, um, what all that's desirable in Israel will be for you, and then gives him the best portion of the sacrifice. Isn't that kind of fulfilling that immediately almost? So it kind of leans you in one direction as to what that means. Um, this is for him. And so they offer the sacrifice. And then the next day they go down to Samuel's house and he sleeps on the roof, which probably indicates it was during the summertime. It was nice out, you know, cool on the roof. And uh, this, this portion of the story ends with Samuel saying, send your servant on and I need to talk with you. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And then we break. <laughs> Why did I break it there? Because the actual story is much too long for one sermon. So I thought this would be a convenient, and it's right at the chapter break. And those are inspired, right? No, they're not. Um, but it just felt like a, an appropriate place to stop. We'll get the rest of the story. So this week we're introduced to Saul. Next week we'll get the what happens to him. So Saul sounds like a pretty good guy so far, doesn't he? He's, he's working for his dad. He's going to go find these lost uh, animals. He's handsome, tall, rich. Um, he's got all of this stuff going for him. So that's the picture. He could turn out to be a good guy. Let's rotate that image for a second. Let's look at it from the other direction. Um, he's on a mission to find his donkeys. Did he succeed? He never found them. They went home without him. And, and as he's going, it says in verse four, he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, and they did not find him. And they passed through the land of Shalom, and they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin and did not find them. He's from Benjamin. He goes to Ephraim. He hits these other two places. He goes back to Benjamin and searches around and still doesn't find him. And then he lands in the, uh, the land of Zuf. He's lost. He's wandering. He's just kind of limbering around. He's not sure what to do or where to go. And he still hasn't found the donkeys after all that. He's, he's just wandering aimlessly. So verse five, and then when they came to Zuf, he, his servant said to him, 
he says to his servant, rather, come, let's go back to my father uh, because he's going to care more about us than he is about the donkeys. Um, Saul is ready to abandon his mission. He's ready to just give up. One of the commentators said that often a person's uh, first recorded words in the text are a defining moment for his character. I'm not sure that's always true, but in this case, there's, I think there's something to it. His very first words are, let's give up and go home. And, and Saul is concerned about his father. He cares about his dad, but he's uncertain about his direction and, and really uncommitted to his mission. He, he's not being a good, solid leader like we would think. And then his servant says, behold, there's a man in this city who is a man of God, and he's held in honor, and all he says comes true. Saul seems to be completely oblivious to the existence of Samuel. He doesn't seem to understand it. And remember who Samuel is. He was this man whose word spread throughout Israel. He became a judge of all Israel. He made this circuit around Israel to judge the people. And somehow Saul has missed that. He doesn't get it. He, he needs to be introduced. Oh, wait, there's a prophet. Oh, cool. I didn't know there was a prophet. It just isn't a very attractive picture when you look at it that way. So then his servant suggests, let's go to him for help. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go to him and we'll ask him and he'll tell us what we should do. He'll tell us what our mission is. And Saul seems to be resistant to the suggestion that he would go and ask God for help. He could go to a seer a prophet, and, and he seems to resist it. He says, well, I don't have anything to bring him. We can't go to him. I'm supposed to bring him a gift. I don't have anything. What are we going to do about that? So he's resisting the call to seek God in this. He's, he's going to go the other way. And he doesn't seem very well prepared, does he? He took a bag with three days worth of bread and just assumed that it was going to cover it. He didn't even bring money in case something else came up. Fortunately, he's got a very resourceful servant who went, yeah, I'm going to bring something else. So it's just, again, he he's, seems to be almost presumptuous, like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll knock this out in a day or so. Um, and now he's, he's ill-prepared. So if it wasn't for the servant, who knows where we would be at this point. So this leads us to that ambiguous statement about, is he the desire of Israel, or is all that Israel desires going to be his, or or how is that going to work? And, and he's just not sure at that point. One of the things I, one of the reasons I think that statement is ambiguous is because who has made Saul king of Israel at this point? The people are not mentioned at all, are they? This is God doing this. God is the one who's going to make Saul king. And that's an important theological lesson here because we need to remember that God is the one who installs leaders in nations. God raises up rulers. He brings them down. So when we get to this point, we ask the question, why is Saul the king? Not because he was democratically elected. It's because God is the one who said, this is the one. He's going to come, and I'm going to point him out. I will tell you that this is the man. So this, this moves this into to God's territory. It's important to remember that because I think the people were looking at him and saying, that's what we want. Remember what they asked for last week? We want a king like the nations around us so that we can be like the nations around us. So I think this is Israel's desire is to have this kind of guy as a king. He meets the requirements. Wealthy, good-looking, impressive in battle. That's, that's what we want. 
So I think it might be that that the people we're calling on that, but our author is very careful. Remember I said he was very particular about words, defines that definition between prophet and seer. He's being very careful about words here, and he wants us to see this is God putting him on the throne. But even then, he doesn't call him a king. Did you notice that when we were reading it? He says he'll be a leader. He'll be a prince. But he's not a melech, which is the Hebrew word for king. He doesn't use that word yet. He will be. He'll, he'll use the word later. But at this point, he, he's, he's making sure that we understand God is still king in Israel. Israel hasn't voted him out of office and voted Saul in. And so that's, that's kind of the picture that we, we are starting out with Saul. He could be good. He could be bad. We're not sure. You could read it one of two different ways. Um, we're, we're kind of left in limbo. But the real question here is, is, how should we understand this lesson about Saul? What is it teaching us? What are we supposed to learn about this? Well, one of the things that we learn about this is, remember, we're reading from a New Testament perspective. So we've got all the revelation and we've got all of that. And so it's a little bit unfair to look at this and say, well, they, they blew it. But we do need to look at it with New Testament eyes. And when we do that, what's the kingdom like in the New Testament? Our kingdom is upside down. The first shall be last. The last will be first. If you want to be the greatest among all, you have to serve all. Our, our kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Jesus Christ himself had no majesty. It, it, Isaiah 53, he had no majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one with whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Because if we look at the kingdom through earthly eyes, Jesus is not any kind of Saul. He's not tall, he's not handsome, and he's not rich. As a matter of fact, look at Jesus' ascent to his throne. He's accused, falsely accused, by his, uh, his countrymen. He's put up behind, before a mock trial and unjustly found guilty of something he never did, and then unrightly sentenced to execution. As he's hanging on the cross, dying, the only possessions he had were his clothes, and those are, those are raffled off amongst his, his tormentors. He, he looks to his friend and gives his mother away because he's, he's got nothing left. He's weak and poor and despised. Once he's died and he's laid in a tomb, it's not even his tomb. He had to borrow a grave. So if we stop and we look at this from a, an earthly perspective, we go, he's a loser. He lost everything. Everything was taken away from him. He wound up with nothing. But if we look at it with a kingdom perspective, we go, that's upside down. He didn't lose everything. He gained everything. He won the world. He, he, he drew a people to himself. His death was overcome, or his, his death overcame death. Friday night at the Gins, when we were praying, we sang a song, and it said he trampled over death by death. So in his loss, in his abandoning everything, and everything being taken away from him, even his life, he's victorious. He's, he defeats death. He defeats all the enemies that we could never touch. Death, sin, hell. Satan, the um, uh, fallen angels, all of that are defeated because of what he did. So if we don't look at the kingdom upside down, if we look at it the way the world looks at it, he's lost, he's a loser, and he's not going to be any good. It failed. But when we look through um, spiritual eyes, when we look with a New Testament perspective on this, we go, he gained everything. He, he's victorious over all. And no, we can't see him sitting on the throne at the moment. He's, he's ascended into heaven. 
we're waiting his return and we'll see him reign at that point. But we have to understand that sometimes our perspective can be slanted too much in one direction. We can fall prey to that, what's called the confirmation bias. That's, that's one of the reasons that optical illusions work is because we can only process things that, or we tend to only process things well that already agree with what we understand. So if we're coming at Christianity from an earthly perspective, a human perspective, the perspective that we have grown up in, it doesn't look good. It looks like a, a failure. <laughs> I've jokingly said in the past, how do you evangelize a Klingon? The Klingons think that battle, glory in battle and, and vanquishing your enemies and everything is the ultimate. If you go to them and say, well, Jesus died, then they would say he failed. That's the kind of, if we approach the, the, the problem that way, we're going to come up with the wrong answer. The promise here is that Jesus has overcome. He's beat everything. So when we look back and we see Saul, there's promise, right? It could be good. Um, it's not that being tall is bad, that being wealthy is bad, that being handsome is a bad thing. Those aren't negative things. What they're not is the defining realities. They're not the ultimate. This is the best when somebody's in that category. That's why it drives me nuts when you see a celebrity going to Congress and testifying about something. It's like, you realize this person plays a, per, a smart person in the movies. They're, they're not really that smart. Now they might be, I mean, I'm not excluding all of them, but generally speaking, you get this impression because we've seen this person play this smart person on TV or in the movies, therefore they must be smart. Therefore their testimony must be worthy. It's like, not necessarily. <laughs> They could be just a putz like you and I, you know, they're not going to ask me to go testify about global warming in front of Congress because I don't know anything about it. But if I had a TV show, I might. That, that's the way the world approaches it. We have to be careful with that. The lesson we're learning through 1 Samuel is what the kingdom of God is actually like, what it will actually be like, and it's upside down. Do you want to be first in the kingdom? Serve everybody. Do you want to gain the entire world? Lose it. That, that's how we achieve greatness in the kingdom is by serving everybody, not by putting, not by being the winner, the, the best person, the, the strongest person. So John Piper is really a nerd. He is just a, a, a nerd. He just is. Um, he's, he's kind of a dork. But I'll tell you what, the dorks are, are teaching us some great truths. He's, he's teaching the word of God with clarity and accuracy. Tim Keller is the nerd. John Piper is the goof, or is the, 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 um, the kind of goofy kind of guy. Tim Keller is the nerd. He talks about Lord of the Rings and, um, and C.S. Lewis all the time. But that's not defining who he is. What he's doing is he's teaching well. John MacArthur is a very clear, strong, accurate leader. He's, he's got a clear vision and, and he's, he's, you know, the kind of guy you want to put up in charge. And, and this is the, you know, going to lead us in the right direction. But that's not what makes him great. What makes him great is that he is faithful to God's word. And so that's how we have to approach these things. When we look at Saul, we're going to evaluate him from an earthly perspective and either go, he's great or he's a loser. The reality is we need to look at it from a kingdom perspective and see him upside down. How's he going to do? How is this going to go? Where is he going to wind up? And so next week, we're going to come back and we're going to catch the announcement of his, his uh, um, becoming king. And even then, it's not the end of the story. This is a long section, and so I have to break it up. But um, we've been introduced to him now. We've got this kind of, uh, not sure, 
And then we're going to hear next week how he's announced that he's going to be the king of Israel. And is this it? Is this the, the one? Uh, we'll see. We'll have to wait to go through the rest of the book. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, it's, it's hard for us to see the world upside down the way that we're supposed to. Actually, I think we're seeing it upside down. We're supposed to see it right side up, which is, Lord, that we are not the be all and end all. We're not the definition of what's good and great. But Lord, we can look to you. We can see you as what is true and right and beautiful. Even though you had no great beauty to attract us to you, Lord, your beauty was something far deeper and far more important. And so, Lord, let us not be enamored of the Sauls of the world, but, Lord, let's look at Saul and the Sauls of the world in the perspective that the kingdom gives us, which is, are they humble? Are they dependent on God? Are they leading us closer to Jesus or further away? And so, Lord, let us evaluate our leaders in that light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.